0: Welcome to the HeartStrong Discipleship Podcast. Visit heartstrong.life forward slash login to access the notes from today and all the benefits of our membership community. One to the two and two to the three. Let the world see the Holy Trinity. Let's become HeartStrong Disciples of Jesus together.
1: right so here we are our final my final day teaching with you in our final uh time together as um pastor Ingrid and I hosting uh and leading uh heartstrong this month we'll be moving on to a new month next month and uh next week and it'll be I'm sure it's going to be awesome as you continue on in um in in Joshua and then keep moving forward but um yeah, I just wanted to say it's been a pleasure to to be with you and to dig into these scriptures and, and uh, see what God has to say to us uh, as we read through these accounts, because they really are just accounts of God working with his people, through his people, for his purpose uh, with his people. And uh, while it's specific to Israel, there's always something that we can glean about the nature of God, the character of God that is consistent for us uh, throughout all time. And so we're going to dive in today and look at, um, look at how Israel, uh, the totality of what we'll look at is, is really Israel finishing all their campaigns in, uh, uh, in, the, in the promised land. And um, there'll be a lot of battles, a lot of battles, and uh, we'll just work our way through and um, we'll finish off and then we'll be able to rest with Israel. All right, so let's pray and then we'll dive in. God, we just thank you again for this special time we've had this month. We thank you for all the different people uh, that have been able to um, share this month with us. We thank you for Brother Andre and uh, Sister Elizabeth. We thank you for uh, Pastor Paul Burley from Smith Falls, and we thank you for Ken Matende and Pastor Ingrid. We thank you that they all contributed something unique, uh, something that their perspective uh, saw about God and about our relationship with him that drew our attention to things in our own lives that um that God does and that God is working on and that God is drawing us closer to himself and so we just thank you for that God that that um you worked this all out that your holy Spirit spoke to us and uh and um, just brought these moments about because you do care about each and every one of us um, And uh, want us to grow in you. And so we just pray that today is no different. That we would just uh, open our hearts to receive and that our eyes would be open to see and our ears would be open to hear what your word has for us and how we can grow uh, closer to you and live out your kingdom purpose for us today. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right. So let's dive in. So we're again, like uh, Lee Star said, we're doing chapter ten and eleven, and so chapter 10 starts with a an elongated version of the beginning of chapter nine, where there's five kings that choose to attack Israel, and uh, it's just a longer version of that, and it mixes in the fact that um, the Hivites, who I was I've been calling the Gibeonites because after the city that they're in. Uh, after they made their peace treaty. So here we have the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon banding together to come against them. And their plan was to not actually attack Israel, but to attack uh, the city of Gibeon, people who had just made that covenant and that, that, uh, that peace treaty with Israel this is potentially to drive a wedge between them potentially to challenge whether or not israel is actually going to defend them or not it could be a strategic move because the uh, hivites would have had soldiers and would have had an army of their own that would have been uh, you know grafted into israel's fighting forces to try and weaken the fact that they had just they had just grown their army in size so there's a number of reasons why they could have attacked them Um, But it is, again, to stop Israel's um, advance throughout the promised land, creating a land for themselves. But Gibeon calls out for help uh, to Israel and reminding them of their binding commitment they made uh, before the Lord for guaranteeing their protection. Um, In verse 8, potentially learning from the mistakes of running ahead without talking to God, we see that the Lord has guaranteed victory. Right before they head out, the Lord tells them to go out because He has given them into Israel's hands. And I love how it's a past tense there; Uh, He's already done it. This is a a fait accompli; it's done already. All they have to do is walk into it. Obviously, there's fighting to take place, but God has already guaranteed the battle. They just have to obediently step forward, and there's a promise there that no one will be left standing. Verse eleven. Then, uh, and and this is where it starts to get crazy in this story. Joshua marches the army through the night to meet them in battle because you remember they were camped only only a day away from uh, from Gibeon, right? That's they had they'd been away, and then they marched forward. The army marches forward, like I said, probably over a nighttime march, and then they ended up standing right there at the city of Gibeon, wondering why they were deceived. And then they went back to the the rest of the people in the camp and so it was only a day away so they they do their overnight um overnight hike their overnight march to get there and God throws the enemy into a panic uh, and they cr- they strike a crushing blow to them and as this uh this five king army are retreating they're going along this decline as they're they're racing away from uh, Ways from Gi- Gibeon, and God sends giant hailstones to um, to aid in the the the, uh, the the pursuing and killing the army. And not only did he send the hailstones to help, he actually kills more soldiers with the hailstones than Joshua kills uh, in combat with them. Truly, God is bringing the victory. Truly, when God says, "Hey, I'm." don't worry. I've given them over to you in your hand. The victory is secure. That he is actually the one taking care of us. And you think, wow, that's pretty crazy. I know last night there were some pretty crazy thunderstorms and some of you may have experienced hail where you are or or bad storms. There's nothing compared to what God did, striking men down with hail in order to um, secure the victory, not allowing anybody to retreat and uh, live to fight another day. And you think, well, that's a, that's a pretty crazy story of how uh, God ensures victory, but that's just the beginning because it gets crazier. Because uh, then uh, we read in verse 12 to 16, it says, At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said, In the sight of Israel, son, Stand still at Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ajan, Ajalon. and the sun stood, stood still and the moon stopped until that nation took vengeance on their enemies. He says, this is not written in the book of Jashar. the sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man for the lord fought for israel what an amazing passage you can imagine probably like me joshua standing there seeing the battle seeing that um the they're they're running before them and they're they're the amorites are are fleeing and trying to get back to their fortified cities and i trying to to maybe um like uh pull themselves back together to try and, you know, figure out a new, a new tactic for fighting, whatever it was, he sees what's happening and he's like, we're not going to have enough time in the day to finish off what God wants. And he has the audacity to look up at the sun and to see that the moon is probably going to be coming up in a valley. And he's like, son, just stop, Sun, stop there. Moon, you stop there. Allow us enough time to finish this battle. And you'd be like, how many times have you wished for a little bit more time in the day? <laughs> we just had a little bit more hours. And yet here, this happens. Such a surreal story. And there's been much speculation as to what this means. What happened when he said those things? Was it actually sun standing still? Was it more like an eclipse happening of some sort? Was it a solar flare? did the sun dim so it wasn't so bright in the hot battle because they're thinking maybe he was just saying sun stands still because the hailstorms were happening and he was like just keep it so we can fight this um there was some speculation that there was only light where israel was fighting and it stayed daytime where israel's fighting and uh everywhere else it was like the rest of the day um similar to what it was like in egypt when in one of the um one of the signs and wonders that God was doing there when they were leaving was that it was complete and utter darkness where Egypt was, but Israel had um, had daylight. So there's lots of theories as to what actually happened that try to justify it happening within natural causes that try to justify it going like, oh yeah, this is just something that potentially uh, was, Timed by God, as far as like he had a he had a natural cycle of things happening, and he chose that day for the victory to happen on that natural cycle of things, which is totally possible, but it doesn't quite match up with what is actually being said and done. That a whole day, because a solar eclipse is an is an hour at best, or a few minutes in the daytime. It's not. It's not a like a twelve hour period of light. A whole extra day's worth of sun. So all these series, they 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 fall short of satisfying the verses as they're written because they're not written in um, metaphor or hyperbole or imaginative language. He's he's really just saying, "Sun, just pause there. Moon, pause there. You know, so that we can continue what we're doing." So one is left to to surely to. To trust that surely the Lord answered the prayers of Joshua and extended the length of the day to allow victory to be complete. Somehow the earth paused in its rotation or changed its rotation to allow for the extended day. It certainly wouldn't be beyond uh, the ability of God because God made everything, He spoke everything into existence. How easy would it be for Him to pause what He could speak into existence? and allow this to happen. He's done all the signs in Egypt. He's parted the water for Israel. They just finished eating manna for 40 years in the desert. Or how about this? Their sandals for those 40 years never wore out. Their clothes never wore out. Now, I'm sure a lot of you here have had kids And you know, that is probably the greatest miracle that was in here. Their clothes did not wear out. How many people know kids' shoes do not last more than one season? You don't go through multiple seasons with kids' shoes. They're done. They're over. To me, that was one of the biggest miracles I saw in here, that their kids' shoes did not wear out. And so if he can make kids' shoes last for for 40 years so they can have another generation and they can just keep wearing shoes and keep going with that, I have no problem believing he can make the sunset still, because I go through way too many shoes in my house. Just a little bit, moment of lightness in the middle of this lightness, light standing still. Anyways, um, so we can see that God is God is doing something extraordinary there. And we also know if you're if we were to jump ahead, we also know that something special happens in Second Kings uh, 20 verses nine to eleven where Isaiah gives them the choice to see a shadow move either 10 feet forward or 10 feet backwards instantly, which changes either the direction of the sun and how the sun is moving. I don't know how that works. I don't know how you change a shadow with, with, without affecting time that you can just say, hey, which way do you want to see that shadow move? 10 feet, not, not, not a couple of inches. Not a, not just shift a little bit to the right or to the left, ten feet forward from one side of a person, or he could make it go ten feet back the other way. That's ridiculous. That 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 he could say to somebody, "Oh, you want proof? Which way do you want the shadow to go?" And we'll make it happen. That's how does that even happen? It's obviously, God is the God of miracles and the God of extraordinary. Something like that. Uh, something that like Joshua. Um, where am I here? Something that, like Joshua, we have the potential to tap into when we uh, audaciously follow him. When we make it our ambition uh, to allow God to put us in positions where we need him to show up. Not positions where we put ourselves in and then expect God to necessarily rescue us. But when our faith fully rests in him, that we are certain that he has called us to do something he'll get us through. That's when uh, he says he has given us something um, that we realize in the past tense and rest secure in knowledge that his word is yes and amen. That when we stand in the place that he's asked us to go and he's asked us to do something and we have no power to do it on our own, that God will make a way. There will be a miracle in that moment for us. Now, well, we're free to ask God to do spectacular things. You can ask God for the sun to stand still for you today. Um, but we should temper our excitement uh, for doing that, for for what we should expect when we ask God to do that. Um, I'm not sure you can ask, the God, ask God to have the sun stand still so you can hand in that work report before the end of the day. Or so you can finish cutting your lawn. Or so that your vacation can last a little longer. Or you can have... Uh, the perfect day for your wedding. I don't know if God's gonna answer those prayers directly like that. Maybe he will, but uh, I know that God does these things for his glory so that his glory can be known through the land. He doesn't necessarily do them just for our willy nilly uh, desires, not for our comfort or a thrill or just our will. God puts his glory on display So he can be worshiped. And so we should also not be adrenaline junkies, spiritual adrenaline junkies, looking for the next spiritual highlight reel moment. There's a tediousness and a a consistency to God being the same yesterday, today, and forever. God can be who he is because he never changes. His holiness probably lies more in his unchanging nature than his ability to smite you on the longest day of the year. God is holy because he is who he is and he will not change, not because he can flex and do powerful things. It is only our consistent faith, our our consistent devotion to him that we can find humility and trust that God can do what he needs to do for his glory. And there may be an occasion for us to be the vessels that he works through. Maybe in our devotion, our faithfulness, our trust in him, he has a moment where he's going to show off his power for his glory. And Maybe a question for us today is this. Does our devotion, our trust, and our obedience and lead, uh, in him lead us to moments where God has to move in order for the kingdom to advance, for his glory to be shown? And well, what do you need more of for that to happen? Devotion? Trust? obedience. That's not to say that any and every one of us are going to go around walking and seeing the supernatural happen in such a dramatic way. But we can live, like Joshua, like Israel, in moments of obedience, in the moments of trust, in moments of faith, that gives God the space to do so. If we don't live in those moments or in, in that fashion, then we're not really giving God a lot of space to work in that way through us. And we can't live in those places, constantly asking the sun to stand still and the moon to stop and to live in that moment. We can't live in those, but we can lean into God using those moments in our lives. And from there, uh, Joshua uh, finds where the kings are hidden because he does all this battle and the kings, in the midst of that, the kings go off and hide um they've seen how the how defeated they are and the five kings end up in a cave hiding from joshua and he, he finds out where they are some somebody spies it out or somebody rats on them and and they're uh, they're found out and he he puts a um rocks over the mouth of the cave so they can't escape while the battle finishes and he, he continues on fighting until it's totally done and then we read uh something interesting that i find fascinating fascinating because of what it implies. He says this, he says, pursue your enemies, attack their rear guard. Do not let them enter their cities for the Lord, your God has given them into your hand. And when Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with a great blow until they were wiped out. And when the remnant that remained of them had entered into the fortified cities, then other people returned safe. Joshua at the camp of Makeda. And uh, there was a cave near that camp. That's where the kings were. Now, I find it interesting because it starts that part where where he says, don't let them enter the cities. God has given them into your hand. Don't let them get to the cities. Don't let them get into those fortified places. Pursue them and kill them all. Just like God has has said, like, uh, clear the land of your enemies. But yet, it seems like a remnant escapes back to the fortified cities there seems to be some who who do get back into the cities Joshua would defeat the king and army of Jerusalem but he didn't take the city or its inhabitants he doesn't touch Jerusalem at all in that battle he doesn't touch Jerusalem in the battles that we'll read further down Jerusalem stays as it is a fortified city with all of its inhabitants in the midst of the land Seems interesting to me when I read that, because there's no judgment necessarily in it. But we know that it will be a cause of major problems for Israel. This The city won't be taken until much later. We'll see in Judges as they do some work there and how David we will read again how David has to retake the city uh, and and claim it for his his uh, his capital. Um, we know that it causes problems for Israel when they have these cities that were fortified and were not cleaned out. They may have taken out their armies, but they didn't take out all the people in the city that were that were worshiping other gods and causing, that would potentially cause them to turn from God. Doesn't lay blame here, but it certainly had a role in Israel's trouble staying separated to God as a nation. So I just thought it was interesting how it points that out that he says, don't let them enter their cities. And yet a remnant does enter the fortified cities. Throughout the land, no one would speak about Israel. Before, I'm sure, when they heard of Israel, they would scoff and they would throw out some curses on Israel. And they would say, don't worry, when they get to us, we'll be the ones that can stop them and take care of them. But after they defeat the five kings, uh, there's a fear over them, about them over the land. No one even wants to mention their name. For fear of them and fear of their God was certainly gripping the land. Joshua then has some cultural appropriate leadership exercises, leadership building exercises. And I say culturally appropriate because I don't recommend anybody do this today in, uh, as a leadership exercise. Exercise. He has his, his leaders, his military leaders and leaders of the nation of Israel as a sign of domination, of victory and of subjugation. He has them step on the necks of those five kings. He, he has them come over and he's like, come on over, step on their necks. And he says, this is the victory that God's giving you over the land. And he empowers them because he says to them what God has said to him. Be strong and courageous for, the God, for God has given you this land. And he, he's doing this as this empowering moment and says like, listen, I know that I'm leading you. But guess what? You're in this too. And God is, is with you in all this. And he, he kind of like multiplies His um, the strength and courage that's needed for all these battles. And I don't recommend anybody do this as a leadership exercise. Don't step on anybody's neck to encourage and empower somebody else as far as the role they have in authority and leadership. But in that case, in this section, um, it's culturally appropriate for what they're doing because it was those things. To do so in that culture meant you have been dominated. You have been, uh, so, uh, there's, you've been subjected to um, either destruction or to um, slavery or to whatever uh, over your enemy. But it's interesting that Joshua does this, that he takes this moment to take his leaders and build into them the, the fact that they're strong and courageous as well. And so my question here for you would be this. Who in your life could have joined you or could join you in proverbially stepping on next? could could join you in moments of victory to say, hey, you were a part of this victory and you have this, you need to be strong and courageous for what God has for you to do. Maybe there's somebody who needs to, you You can empower to do that so they can walk confidently into what God has um, for them, what God has, the the kingdom glorifying winds that God has for them to step into. So maybe think about that, who in your life can you bring along in moments of victory and say, this is you too. You have this too. What's in me to be able to accomplish this is also in you to be able to give them the strength to potentially do that as well. Could be beautiful mentoring, discipling, and leading moments for somebody who's um, growing in Christ and needs to, to have that moment of victory in order to be able to say, hey, I was a part of this. I can, I can lead something like this. All right, leadership moments, discipleship moments like this can be life-giving so and so empowering for this growing and maturing in faith. Joshua closes these battles, killing the kings, cursing them, and burying them in the cave that they were found in. This is a constant thing that they would do is, is bury the leaders, bury somebody in a cave or underneath, and they would become a it become known this is where this king is buried this is where those five kings are buried this is this is what god did in the land so these memorials and these stone piles weren't just um quick graves for them to 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 bury and move on they were they were markers of what god had done and they were like warnings for anybody else who would want to think they could challenge that god god is has given them victory all right uh let's see where we okay so next thing I want to do that, that pretty much gets us through chapter, um, chapter 10, uh, 10. And uh, what I want to do here is I want to just, uh, in our closing time together, I want us to just read through chapter 11, as we go through all these different battles and hear the victories that God had for them and how they brought them about. So if you have your Bible, you can pull it out and follow along and we're just going to read through, um, chapter Chapter 11 to finish off our time here together in my time teaching with you. So let's join in reading chapter 11. When Jabin, king of Hazor, heard this, he sent Jobab, king of Madon, and the kin, king of Shimron, and the king of Ash, Ashkathath, and the kings who were in the northern hill country, in the Arabah, south of Chinaroth, in the lowland in uh, Naphthor, on the west, uh, to the Canaanites in the east and the west, to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Jebusites in the hill country and the Hivites under Hermon and the land of Mizpah. And they, they came out with all their troops, a great horde in number, like the sand that is on the seashore with very many horses and chariots. I'm picturing... If you've ever seen um, the um, Lord of the Rings, that final battle, like uh, in the one in the one uh, movie. Um, and there's hordes everywhere. And all you can see is like a moving hill of people. That's what I'm picturing when I see that. And all the kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. And again, the Lord said to Joshua, so we can see that he's consulting. God's talking to him. He's talking to God. Do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give them all, uh, give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merom and fell upon them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel, who struck them and chased them as far as Great Sidon and Misferoth, and claim and uh, main and eastward as far as the valley of Mizpah. And they struck them until they left none remaining. And Joshua did to them, just as the Lord had said to him, he hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. And Joshua turned back at that time and captured Hazor and struck its king with the sword. For Hazor formerly was the head of all those kingdoms. And they struck with the sword all who were in it, devoting them to destruction. There was none left that breathed. And he burned Hazor with fire and all the cities of the kings and all their kings Joshua captured and struck them with the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. But none of the cities that stood on mounds did Israel burn, except Hazor alone that Joshua burned. And all the spoils of these cities and the livestock, the people of Israel took for their plunder. But every person they struck with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them. And they did not leave any who breathed. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua. And so Joshua did. He left nothing undone that of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So Joshua took all that land, the hill country, and all the Negeb, and all the land of Goshen, in the lowland, in the Arabah, in the hill country of Israel, and in the lowland from Mount Halleck to the rise towards Seir, and as far as Balgad in the valley of Lebanon, below Mount Hermon. And he captured all their kings and struck them and put them to death. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made made peace with the people of Israel, except the Hivites, who I was calling Gibeonites, because that was the city they were in. Um, the inhabitants of Gibeon, they they took all them all in battle. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts, that they should come against Israel in battle, in order that they should be devoted for this to destruction and should receive no mercy, but be destroyed, just as the Lord commanded Moses. He hardened their hearts, similar to the way he hardened their, the hearts, the heart of Pharaoh. Their sin and their degradation had gone so far that their hearts were hard towards God and Israel. And Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, and from Anab, and from all the hill country of Judah, and all the hill country of Israel. Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. And there was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. Only in Gaza, Kin, Gath. And in Ashdod, did some remain. If you know, if you heard that, you, you think of Gath and uh, you think of some of those places. The, the um, Anakim were the giants in the land that, that dismayed the first spies. They were the tall, big, huge ones. And this is probably where we have Goliath coming from. Some of the remnants of this people is where we see Goliath. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance. To uh, Israel, according to their tribal allotments, and the uh, sorry, I missed the first part. Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and then he gave it as an inheritance. And the land had rest from war. What an end to this epic battle! This probably took about seven years to happen. It wasn't quick. It looks like it takes a number of days, but it's seven years, and we know that because. If we were to do the math on how old we know that um, Caleb is, we know that he's 40 and that it's 38 years later that they're about to be here or I can't remember. Yeah, he's about, um, what is that, 78 when they enter the promised land and then he's 85 when he gets his inheritance, when he gets the the, the hill country that he's going to have, he's eighty five. So we know it was about a seven years of battle that they're going through the land, uh, clearing the land of all these these places. So it's not like it happened in, you know, a, a fifteen day war. It took it took seven years to uh, clear the land. All right. If anybody needs to go, you can go. Thank you so much for going through all this with us. It's been My pleasure and honor to to do that. Um, But uh, we'll just, uh, we'll finish off here and and go into um, our time of discussion. Um, I want you to hear something that you you heard in that last chapter. You heard it a number of times there. But it says, Joshua had done everything God commanded Moses to do. And uh, it's interesting to hear that because what we just experienced was everything that Moses was, to, was supposed to have done. Moses was supposed to have brought all the people into the promised land. Moses was supposed to help them inhabit the promised land. Except he had, he, had, uh, he had fallen short of what God asked for him to do. He had, he had disobeyed God and God's command and was then not allowed to enter the promised land. And so these seven years has just been Joshua finishing Moses' task. And so you'd see that maybe Moses was supposed to take over at this point from, from, or Joshua was supposed to take over at this point or been aiding Moses in doing this. And yet Joshua had to finish that work. And I've, um, I've, uh, that passage has stood out to me a long time and, um, and provoked me just to humbly continue to do what I'm supposed to do with God and humbly, um, Look to God and say, God, I want to do everything that you have for me to do. I don't want to leave things undone that somebody else has to come behind me and finish because I left it on the table to do because I wasn't paying enough attention to what you asked me to do in order to accomplish all that you have for me to do. And that I, I say that generationally, I say that like for my whole life, and in individual tasks that God's given me, pastoral positions that God puts me in. I don't want to leave things undone that God asked me to do um, for another person to have to do. So that could be our final question there is, could there be things others will have to do for God because we've left them undone?
0: Thank you for joining us today. A heartstrong disciple of Jesus is one who has been saved by grace and is becoming more like Jesus by abiding in him, learning how Jesus lived, and following in his ways. One of the ways we are helping you become heartstrong is through the monthly training plan, which breaks down how you can practice and develop your spiritual disciplines. Each month, you will find the theme and the focus for the month, a scripture to memorize, a fasting and a Sabbath practice all of your Bible study events and schedules and links, questions for personal reflection, and additional recommended content for the weekend. Of course, you have to be a HeartStrong member to access this awesome resource. So visit heartstrong.life and click membership to join. Let's become HeartStrong Disciples together.